And in many ways, that's indicative of where the Republican voting base is going uh, in French politics, sort of drifting towards the right. always includes a form of incompleteness because it is not self-sufficient. The terror during the French Revolution dug an emotional, imaginary, collective void. The king is no longer there. In 2015, the then Minister of Economy Emmanuel Macron gave this remarkable analysis of French politics. The French, ever since the death of Louis XVI in 1793, have tried to replace the king. General de Gaulle gave France its current presidential system that essentially grants the electorate the right to crown their own king every five years. The heirs of de Gaulle on the right have tried to carry this heavy mantle, but were blindsided in the 2017 presidential election by Macron, even missing out on the runoff for the first time. Nearly five years later, the weakened centre-right party Les Républicains tries to parry attacks on all sides, on its left, Emmanuel Macron and his desire to triangulate the right. And on their right, the chef surprise, the nationalist TV polemist turned feisty presidential contender Éric Zemmour, who just held his first public rally this weekend. On Friday as well, Les Républicains have managed to pick their candidate for the 2022 presidential election. The president of a powerful Ile-de-France region, Valérie Pécresse. The French right now stands divided into three blocks of comparable size Pécresse, Zemmour, and Marine Le Pen. I take stock of that situation with Jorge and friend of the show, Julian. If you like the show, you can get more than common decency at Mace Magazine. Mace Magazine is a fantastic publication on British and European politics, and we've been publishing for them some great weekly articles where we build on the key takeaways of our episodes a great way to dig deeper on the issues we cover. If you like the show and find yourself coming back most weeks to listen, please consider supporting the show for Patreon. We've been doing this on our spare time, and while it's definitely been worth a ride, we've been paying all our physical and digital equipment out of our pockets, and we would love to be able to have extra resources to put together special events or improve our equipment and many other cool projects we have in mind. So. To our patron, thanks a lot. We can't thank you enough for your help. For those of you on the fence, we can't promise you any special content yet. But if enough of you join our patron, we will consider adding paid tiers with special content for our patrons and special sessions with our followers. If you can't spare the money, no worries. But as always, you can rate and review and comment decency on Apple Podcasts. And I can't stress this enough. These reviews really help us a lot to grow on what is a very competitive podcast landscape. And lastly, if you want to get in touch, please continue sending us your comments and questions at IndecencyPod on Twitter or IndecencyPod at gmail.com. You should find those links down below in the description. Now, on to the show. So... Second French war room on the 2022 election, and there was a big milestone this week, which was for French centre-right primary Les Républicains. Les Républicains is the what it remains of the Gaullist party, um, which has been severely weakened over the past years after it failed to make the runoff in 2017, leaving Macron and Le Pen dominate the French political landscape, landscape since. But they've done a primary nonetheless. A smaller primary than in 2016, when they had 4 million voters, which was huge. This time, they only limited it to people who had a Les Républicains um, membership. So I think there's only like 113,000 something people who, who voted. Um, and so the breakdown in the first round gave a lead to Eric Ciotti, the most obviously right-wing candidate on that list. And in second position at 25%, Ciotti was at 25.6%. At 25%, you've got Valérie Pécresse, um, who is the president of the Ile-de-France region, which includes Paris. 
And then, at everyone's surprise, Michel Barnier and Xavier Bertrand, who were essentially the two favorites, are 23.9% for Barnier, 22.4% for Bertrand. Um, so it's a very, very, very close thing right here. Essentially, they're all basically at 25%. And uh, in the end, Suti got first position, Pécresse the second position. So then they went to a runoff. And the runoff was between Pécresse and Suti. The result was not really a surprise because uh, Pécresse had the support of Michel Barnier. Michel Barnier, of course, being former European commissioner, um, being the former Brexit negotiator. And Xavier Bertrand was this kind of very... Um, charismatic, I guess, president of the North Ile-de-France uh, region. And both Bertrand and Barnier called to vote for Pécresse, and Ciotti, despite having a narrow lead in the first round, got blown apart in the second round with only 39% of the vote, which is pretty good, but in no position to actually um, win this. Um, June, when you hear those results, what do the, what do the, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, Francois, thank you for having me back on. Mm-hmm. Um, the most stunning thing for me was the fact that Ciotti, who just was not getting much mention at all mm. in coverage of the French primary, coming in first in the first round. Now, you know, granted, he didn't get the overall nomination, but forty near 40% in the second round is quite impressive for someone who had been considered, you know, as you say, the most right wing. Yeah. And in many ways, that's indicative of where the Republican yeah. voting base is going uh, in French politics, sort of drifting towards the right. And his strong performance in both the first and second round mm. shows that that really is the emerging trend. And even when you look at Pécresse's platform, uh, some of the ideas she was putting out there were, you know, quite similar to things that Ciotti had been saying mm-hmm. in his campaign. So... The results, although so close, there wasn't too much difference in some ways in the, the policies that people were putting forward yeah. to be the leader of the Republican Party for the 22 election. Yeah. Um, and Jorge, feel free to um, to bounce in. But I, I want to add something to what Julian just said. Um, Pécresse, mechanically compared to Suti, seems like much more of a centrist. She historically has been much more of a centrist politician in general. However, if you look at her platform, she's talking to right-wing LR um, party members. Therefore, she's going to adapt that platform to those members. And, for example, one of her most interesting, I thought, measures in the platform was taking what Denmark has been doing, which is essentially making prison sentences for people in essentially the equivalent of a banlieue in Denmark harsher, essentially saying we've got an issue here where um, people are no longer afraid of the police, no longer afraid of, uh, of prison, whatever. We need to make uh, sentences harsher in those areas. Now, I'm not sure that's constitutional in France. I really don't think that will work out. But it's just kind of one of those symbols that uh, the party has run on a very right-wing platform. Even Barnier, Barnier, we talked about Barnier a lot last year. Barnier had a small rhetorium on immigration. Um, so yeah, the race was very much to the right of um, of the LR party. I, just, I, I do want to quickly point out that Francois does deserve some credit for this because just before the first round of the election, I asked him who he thought was going to come in first and he did say Eric Ciotti. Um, <laughs> so we will probably have to ask you for another prediction towards the end. Well, okay, um, I, on, on predictions, I have to say, I've said a, a lot of good things, but a lot of terrible things. I, I predicted something like Zemmour. I predicted Suti. But I also said a month ago I thought Barney would win, um, and um, yeah, so I'm I'm not not always right in my in my predictions. So I don't know. I, I do have a question for you though, yeah. in terms of Pécresse's candidacy now as the Republican nominee, yeah. because a lot of the attacks coming in, whether before from Zemmour saying you know the Republican primary is the race to be Macron's prime minister. Yeah. Um, I think Le Pen described her as the most Macroniste of all the candidates mm-hmm. running in the Republican primary, and you're seeing some articles from centre-right figures describing her as the pro-business moderate in the party. Mm. Does that stick or will her policy positions, which are to the right of where I think people are describing her um, in loose and general terms, will it stick as her being as this pro-business moderate who's, you know, of the centre-right or will this tilt to the more harder line, Mm. conservative right wing of the Republican Party 
will that be her lane and will she be able to lock down that lane? Wow, that's a good question, Julian. Um, I think as long as the campaign goes on, she will have to stick to that kind of very right-wing messaging. Um, does not mean she can't also um, identify herself as a uh, pro-business center-right moderate. I don't think those positions are seen as incompatible by the um, center-right electorate. If you look at, for example, Fillon, who became massively popular within not just the Les Républicains um, core base, but the kind of larger right-wing base, he was essentially on the same platform as Pécresse. Um, very strict on immigration, very strict on crime, uh, very strict on Islamism, but also um, very openly pro-business. So in that, in that sense, he could have been a kind of centre-right moderate, like many other centre-right moderates we've seen who are kind of more economically liberal than uh, conservative socially. That said, I think the moment she, if she loses, I believe she will go back to holding much more moderate positions. Um, I think that's that's something you always see within the kind of centre-right p- politicians is they have very right-wing platforms when during elections and then become much more moderate um, after that. And I think one of the good examples for that might be Michel Barnier. Um, Michel Barnier just lost. Um, he burnt a lot of political capital um, by doing this. He jeopardized a lot of his relationship with Brussels um, over his moratorium on immigration and the rest of it. And I suspect now he's going to try and, and, and hold kind of much more centrist positions on the EU, uh, on immigration, or the rest of it. Um, I just, I just really like this. Uh, Michel Barnier, I think it's important to talk about him because at some point we said on this, plat- on this program, uh, we thought he would win uh, because he had really a real good momentum. A lot of parliamentarians liked him. He hadn't left Les Républicains like Valérie Pécresse or Xavier Bertrand. He stayed in a party until the end. Um, and so the, you could expect the LR, LR core membership to uh, reward him for this fidelity. But I really like the comparison of Brexit as a French Revolution. It's kind of ever-increasing radicalization um, where you you get a... Uh, les états généraux that kicks off a French Revolution is essentially the Brexit referendum. And then uh, you, you lose David Cameron, the king, and then there's kind of a vacuum in which the most radical right-wing party members seem to hold a kind of veto on everything. And for once, revolutionaries become moderates and become uh, uh, guillotined uh, politically. But what, what, why I think this comparison works really well is also the relationship a lot of Remainers had to their own country and to the EU. So, for example, uh, when during the French Revolution, you had all the French nobles emigre who left, for, especially for London, actually. They left to London and they would wish with all their heart, for defeat of revolutionary France. They believe revolutionary France deserves to be punished for the crime of uh, killing the king, for the crime of kicking him out, for the crime of being Republican, and so on and so on. And so they wished the victories of the armies of Austria, the armies of Prussia against France. And I think to some extent, there's a lot of kind of elite Remainers ended up doing the same. They ended up wishing the victories of the EU over Theresa May. I'm not sure if you remember, but all those summits in Brussels, time after time, you would have Theresa May getting uh, uh, humiliated by uh, by the EU, and she would come back empty-handed to, to, to London, and the kind of Remainer uh, elites would, would kind of uh, feel somewhat happy about it, vindicated at least. In that optic, Michel Barnier was, is an Austrian general. He was seen as one of them. He was seen as a person who would uh, right the wrongs and, and show, show Brexit Britain how wrong they were. Uh, and when he comes back to France, the first one, first thing he says is, I want a moratorium on immigration. Now, I heard that Lord Frost, the uh, uh, outer ego of Barnier on the British side, said, I didn't know I robbed, I robbed on him that much uh, with my ideas through the Brexit negotiations. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's a real sign of how much, how strong the feeling of betrayal was in Brussels. Now, now he lost that capital in Brussels. He's not going to become the next French president. 
um, yeah, it's a tough time for, for Michel Barnier. David Frost's only victory in the Brexit talk. Exactly. Probably, or one of the few. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think, you know, there's maybe, I think there still are, given his experience, both at the European level um, and then as a figure of national prominence within France, mm-hmm. He is the sort of person who you could see landing in a cabinet post. And yep. maybe this is me spending too much time in the United States yeah. and already projecting for for future cabinets. Mm-hmm. But you know, Macron is obviously someone who is uh, has a talks a lot about strategic autonomy. Mm-hmm. And given Barnier's depth of relationships with the European Union, mm. um, and also crucially, you know, he does know the key figures in the United Kingdom, and as much as relationships. The relations between Britain and France yep. are quite poor. Yep. Uh, he does at least know the people on the other side, and you could see a role for him as you know someone in foreign the foreign ministry mm-hmm. or in a broader portfolio on French geopolitics, yep. given his breadth of international experience and the personal relationships that he has. So I, I don't think his career is quite over, but it's certainly you know one nail away yeah and I, I want to stress this because the campaign was very much to the right of of uh, les républicains um but a lot of these figures especially barnier pécresse you could very well imagine in a macron second uh, um, presidency maybe it's pm maybe it's uh, foreign affairs for, for barnier or something like that um so that's something to take into account i'm i'm uh, and I think LR party members have know this. But I was shocked to see so many, you know, look at Gérald Darmanin, for example. Gérald Darmanin is a minister for the interior right now for, for Macron. He was Sarkozyist. He was one of kind of the most right-wing Sarkozyist within Sarkozy's uh, wing. And he joined uh, Macron. Um, and there's been so many people who've been identified to the right of LR who ended up joining Macron or begging Macron to give him a position over the past five years. Some of them being like borderline pathetic, actually. Um, but I think LR party members know that they can't be sure these people won't join Macron in a year's time. And I think that psychologically, that is very damaging. Uh, uh, two things. I, I think that's a conversation I had with June, actually, a few months ago about how... Um, the right is very politically pragmatic. It kind of reads the spirit of a time, the zeitgeist, really well. And if you take, for example, Jacques Chirac, who was the great Gaullist uh, candidate from the 70s to the early 2000s, he essentially always adapted to the spirit of a time. In the time. I think in the late 70s, he wanted the Gaullist party to become uh, the a great Labour Party in the mode of perhaps what you could see in the UK. He was also a huge fan of uh, Reagan and Thatcher in the 80s. Um, and then in 1995, he ran as a kind of basically centre-left candidate again. Um, so it's very opportunistic, but I think uh, what we're seeing for nowadays with kind of political realignment with, within the Conservative Party in the UK shows us how pragmatic centre-right parties tend to be. It's more kind of a general understanding of the world than a kind of set of policies that they need to stick to all the time. Um, I will say the, the kind of social Gaullist candidate in the race was Xavier Bertrand, I think. I think Xavier Bertrand, um, he, come, he, he is the president of the Hauts-de-France northern region. So historically, you think of uh, coal mines, you think of the industrial workers, you think all of, all of that. So I think he was that kind of candidate, whether it was you know sincere or whether it was some kind of posturing, I think he wanted to be that candidate. Um, I, but I think I'm right. Also, something we have to realize is the electorate in France is 40 to 45% pensioners. Um, and pensioners, where they act, they act like shareholders, essentially. They're the shareholders of the French companies, if so you want to speak. And so they want to make sure they will keep getting their shares. They will keep getting uh, their money month after month, um, their pensions. And therefore, they are terrified by the increasing debt. They are terrified by um, all that public spending because they are afraid the French company would go bankrupt, in which case they will lose everything. Um, so that's why I think, especially the, the centre-right electorate is very old, very old. They have to kind of, they're not going to win with the kind of social stuff. Um, maybe they'll win on the social stuff on, on pensions, but they're not going to win on the social stuff more general, generally, because 
centre-right voters are terrified by the mounting debt. They're terrified by, the, by France not having a, uh, a, a budget in the green since the 60s. So, um, yeah, you're not going you, to win on that. Um, as much as I think it's an important mix to have within the Gaullist party, um, that kind of um, social Gaullism, I, I do not think it is a, a vote winner. It is for Le Pen, maybe, but not, not for the Gaullists. So I just wanted to pick up on this strand about Gaullism, because I, I read an article, I think it was a couple of months ago, for the anniversary of his death, I believe, mm-hmm. um, on how all French politicians now in some way try to claim the mantle of de Gaulle, yep. including... Even Le Pen, who, although she yeah. will say she's, she will say I'm not a Gaullist because of his stance in Algeria, mm-hmm. she'll still visit um, various World War II sites, you know, claiming him as the the liberator of France mm-hmm. and the voice of an independent France, and claiming those nationalist tones, whilst also conveniently separating herself from her father, who obviously mm-hmm. loathed de Gaulle. Um, but Francois, as someone who is a young Frenchman, yep. is there a generational divide mm-hmm. in terms of the way people? reminisce about de Gaulle. And the comparison I'm going to use is for in the United States, or even actually in the United Kingdom, where you have young conservatives today mm-hmm. who don't remember the Thatcher era's pining for Thatcher. Mm-hmm. And indeed, uh, many Republicans today who some will look back on, uh, let's say, the Reagan era, mm-hmm. and then Democrats who might look back wistfully on Kennedy and Johnson and FDR even. Uh, is there the same thing for young French voters with de Gaulle, who probably stands out in terms of national prominence mm-hmm. a bit more than some of those figures yeah, I just named? Yeah. Um, yeah, as you said, it's, it's hard to compare Ronald Reagan and, and, and de Gaulle because uh, de Gaulle is kind of a, a historical figure that dominates um, French politics to an extent that is impossible for someone who hasn't been a war hero like, like de Gaulle. Do you want to restart? Um, so I think he is still overarching. Um, I do think a lot of people forget how divisive de Gaulle was when he was president. Um, leaving, abandoning Algeria to the Algerians um, seems like sound policy nowadays. But back then, it was hugely controversial, especially among the kind of right-wing figures who would have been his, his support base, especially at the beginning. Um, hugely controversial. He was called a Caldeo, he was called a Mussolini, he was called a, you know, a borderline fascist by the left because he was a general, because he basically came back to power through a mask disguise coup um, in, in, in 1958. Um, he essentially threatened, um, he, he, he suggested to the president of a fourth republic that if nothing happened, maybe a coup would happen and, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and therefore he ended up um, coming back to power. But he, I think, remains this kind of overarching figure um, uh, to the left, and, but, sorry, to, on the right. But nowadays, everybody is a Gaullist, as you say. Um, to the left, I think the only people who will say, I'm not a Gaullist, are on the far left. I think that's the only one who will say, I'm not a Gaullist, people on the far left. Pretty much. Yeah, I mean, that, and that makes a lot of sense. And I suppose, you know, I, when I were talking a little bit about the right, but I suppose now would be a good time to sort of talk about yeah. the state of the left in French politics yeah. nowadays. Um, Jorge, I don't know if you have something to add on that. Um, could, could we go back to the left later, actually? Can we just do Zemmour um, and then, then go back to the kind of, uh, go back to the left? I think it's 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 a better flow to go from, sorry, we'll, we'll okay. delete this, but we'll, um, to go from, from, the right to, to zoom up. Do you want me to come back in on my pivot? Um, um, yeah, J- just ask, just ask something like, um, you can go ahead. So, you know, obviously, you know, all these candidates talking about the legacy of de Gaulle, yeah. and we've talked a little bit about the, the rightward drift. What do you think explains this rightward shift in French politics and the fact that it's created space mm-hmm. for everybody's favorite topic, uh, El Zemmour, mm-hmm. um, on the right to challenge Le Pen on the far right and potentially sort of squeeze out the Republicans on that side too? Yeah. Well, I think first of all, people have to realize France has become a very, very right-wing country. Um, I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not even going to enter the debate of, is Macron a right-wing president? I, I think he, he might be to some extent, but even ignoring that conversation and, and considering Macron is a kind of centrist, if we look at Le Pen, plus Zemmour, plus Pécresse, plus smaller candidates, we make it roughly around 40 to 45% of the electorate. And then a lot, a lot of Macron voters are f- former right-wing voters. 
So France is a very right-wing country. If you actually look at the polls of the past 15 years on immigration, people have essentially been saying the same thing for a decade and a half, which is immigration too much, stop. Um, sometimes in kind of much more radical terms than this. If you look at another recent poll, which was done, I think, a month ago, on the famous uh, uh, or infamous grand remplacement, great replacement theory, which is the idea that um, some elites are getting people from the outside, replacing the native population. Um, I think 65% of the electorate fears the grand remplacement. 61% believes in the grand remplacement, but 65% fears it. And this includes um, some 45% of green voters. So I think if you want to understand why there's such a right-wing push right now in France, it's because the opinion has shifted completely. Now, whether the, it's just the, the reality of, of France, the events in France that is creating that shift, or whether it is the influence of some ideologues, some, some, some authors, that is an open conversation. And this is where Zimur comes in. Zimur for the past 15 years has been within the nuclear reactor of the press, of the media, and he's been able, from that kind of position, to add all his ideas one after the other. Um, on immigration, on assimilation, on terrorism, he has always had this very staunch hard right line, which has been which had been parroted for for a long time over the past, especially especially over the past few months, by LR, by Le Pen. Now all of a sudden, he thinks people will prefer the original to the copy. So he comes in, and we talked about Zemmour a few a few weeks ago. I highly recommend people go to listen to that episode. It's a really good insight on 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 Zemmour. We published it. We, we recorded it before Zemmour announced his candidacy, but I think a lot of the analysis on who he is, on his ideas, haven't changed a single bit since. Now, Zemmour started really strong. He went from essentially 5% in polls um, at the start of the summer to a peak of roughly 17% in uh, mid-October. That is a huge leap for any candidate um, I, I, no pollsters had anything, something so kind of so meteoric, so fast, so strong. However, he has slightly started to dip in polls. Now Le Pen looks like the likely of the two far-right candidates to make it to the second round. Um, he can still come back. He actually, we're recording this on a Sunday. We're going to release this um, on Wednesday, as, as always. Um, and Zemmour right now is preparing his great Villepinte meeting, um, in a huge room, there should be apparently 15,000 people, something like that. Um, so it's going to be a huge rally. Uh, he announces his candidacy um, through a video clip, um, which I'm sure a lot of you have seen or heard about, where he essentially reads a, a well-written text and goes through history and saying, we need to take back a country. Um, we need to be, you know, the... the perpetuate the legacy of the Gaulle, of Jeanne d'Arc, of the Lumière brothers who invented cinema, and so on and so on. France is on the brink, a brink of chaos, and we need to do something about it. And it was very much modelled on de Gaulle's uh, um, yeah, 18th of June um, call from, from Britain on the BBC for French to join the, the, the resistance. Um, but he's at a make-or-break moment. I think he started to, 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 to fall. Um, the reason I think he started to fall is people liked the idea of having a maverick in the race. People liked, having, liked the idea of someone coming in and just wrecking the established scenario. Um, they, they were unhappy with the idea that Macron Le Pen was guaranteed. And they saw Zemmour as their tool, their weapon to destroy that duopoly on French politics. Yeah, so it's it's almost ironic that we we uh, transition from our, our prior segment talking about uh, De Gaulle and whether he's uh, he remains a popular figure among France's youth. And and you mentioned uh, Julian that that obviously uh, people on the far right have uh, have uh, have been uh, sort of lukewarm on on De Gaulle's legacy, primarily because of Algeria. And this is where okay. Zamour really com- comes in. And I, I think that his uh, life story and his particular sort of uh, background or identity, call it what you will, uh, is, is very interesting. And, and it's, it's not being covered nearly enough. I think that, you know, I haven't heard uh, many journalists sort of, um, you know, having an interest in, in the fact that he's a Jewish PNW from Algeria, and that obviously, uh, how that how that has shaped his worldview. I mean, 
uh, when you when you look at the video of the, the the campaign launch video, what you see is Zemmour is is, is someone who is incredibly indebted to France. He feels like an incredible debt of gratitude to the country that gave him everything. It gave him economic prosperity. It gave him social cohesion. It gave him culture. It gave him literature. So he feels like he's incredibly indebted to this country that gave everything. And um, and 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 where I think that his Pianoir background is is uh, relevant is that um, you know his his family again uh, his great great grandparents. Uh, May have uh, may have been made uh, French citizens by the by the Crimean decree, this law in 1870 that made the, that uh, turned uh, the Jews of Algeria into French citizens. And and I, I mean I keep hearing from people both from France and, and Algeria that I've been that I've been talking to over over recent weeks that um, you know he's he's uh, he's his worldview is is uh, is that of a standard uh, Pianois. I mean uh, these people were uh, hardened nationalists uh, before and after the war. And um, you know, I I I I don't think that he said he said much about Algeria, but I think that every every one of his uh, campaign pronouncements is, uh, if if only indirectly, a statement about his indebtedness to France as a as an Algerian Jew. So this is something we didn't talk about in in our conversation with Anisbet Mouté and um, John Litchfield on Zemmour. But what is interesting is actually when he was a young man, he started on the left politically. Mm. Um, he his first election was, I think, 1970s. He voted for the left. His first presidential election, he voted for François Mitterrand. Um, and he, he was a left-wing voter for a long time. Um, again, that's what he says. But he says the pivot happens in uh, L'Affaire de Cray. L'Affaire de Cray mm-hmm. is, um, I think, in 1989, when a group of young um, uh, teenagers went to school wearing a veil in class. Um, in that created huge oh, yeah. national controversy. 15 years later, in 2004, we would have a law saying you could not have ostentatious religious signs in school. But back then, the left was very uncomfortable with this topic. And um, uh, Lionel Jospin, who was a minister back then on, on education, I think, um, refused, said the most important thing was not to stigmatize these young girls. And Zimur said, says, at that moment, I understood that the model... I went through the model of assimilation, which made me the son of um, uh, of uh, Algerian Jews, Berber, um, um, into true Frenchmen. And he said that process, which generations of Spaniards, of Italians went through, he understood would be abandoned. And he says that was kind of this kind of a pivotal moment in his political understanding of of um, of world. So I think it's interesting to see. Um, that he has he hasn't always been this kind of you know you, you say he's got a standard worldview of a pianoir which is true to some extent but he didn't always have that worldview and I think it's a tr- important to to think of that. Mm. Um, something else I want to talk about is I want to talk about Zimur's dip a little bit because he was he was doing really well when we were doing an episode with uh, Anelisbet Mouté and John Litchfield he was riding high on the top of sky high poles which um, seemed to predict him a runoff against Macron. Now he's a few points behind the pen. He's lost a lot of momentum. And there's a few reasons to explain that. Again, as I said, people liked him because he was, he was a weapon they found to destroy the uh, Le Pen-Macron runoff. But all of a sudden, maybe too quickly for Zimbabwe's liking, he became a, a front runner, which meant people were starting to think, actually, do I, do I think this guy could become president? And... Um, to, to have listened to him a lot, it seems like he hasn't completely made that pivot from author, from journalist to politician. When you listen to him, sometimes it feels like he is on a sinews uh, talk show and just talking as he always do in a kind of very uh, uh, intelligent, uh, based on history and like all, all, thing, all things that make him more popular. He still has that kind of identity. But it's not clear to me he has made that pivot to become a politician. So again, he's going to have his rally uh, this Sunday, and maybe um, maybe he's going to be the best speaker since Jacques Chirac. Who knows? Um, I somehow, somewhat doubt it. But um, he hasn't made that pivot. And secondly, there's been a lot of kind of strange amateurism in the Zimur side. Um, uh, there's a lot of young people around him, very um, generous with their time. He's putting a lot of effort. But there's been a lot of kind of unforced errors. It was actually uh, on, on a more funny side. Um, he made a communique after Ciotti's defeat in which he said 
you know, Eric Ciotti, uh, tough luck, uh, you know, you, you fought well and um, you deserve a better fate. Um, I think you showed there's a lot of people within the LR who don't want another centrist like Pecresa, yada, yada, yada. But the first version of that communique he published on Twitter was, uh, you know, the lorem ipsum, the kind of base text you get um, um, uh, for, for formatting. Essentially, someone posted the raw version where there was no text by Zemmour. They published the lorem ipsum straight into on, on Twitter. And they corrected it. Um, but there's small things like that. Um, then there was this famous trip to Marseille. He wanted to go to Marseille. He wanted to talk to people in Marseille, essentially saying, you know, look at Marseille. It's being uh, really destroyed by criminality, by Islamism, by, by drug traffic, and so on and so on. Um, and I think the organization wasn't up to it. Now, it wasn't up to it partly because there's a lot of amateurism, and I don't think it was organized well enough, but also because, and I think that's something few other candidates will have to deal with. He has been attacked by Antifa, not just online, but physically. Um, he has a police protection for past I don't know, five or six years because of uh, his, uh, the threats to his life by, by Islamism. Um, but more generally, um, the Antifa have made his life hell. So he went to a restaurant in Marseille, uh, and like hours later, people ransacked the restaurant in Marseille. Um, some wow. some right wing journalists who were covering Zimur got attacked by Antifa. Um, they took help. They, they took uh, uh, the Antifa took their, their bike helmets and smashed yeah. it on the head of one journalist. Yeah. Um, What's this Noir? Yeah, this is the Livre Noir people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a real issue, which is he had to drop off not at Marseille but at X because he knew there would be a huge welcome committee by the Antifa in Marseille, and so he couldn't, couldn't go on. There's a real issue right now, especially for our candidates, with with kind of a, a rise in aggressive, violent Antifa mobilization, which has made Zemmour's campaign hard. But on top of that, there's also been a lot of um, um, surprising amateurism. I think one element of Zemmour's campaign, the fact that he is running as an outsider without an established party. Mm-hmm. I think people, I know political parties get mocked a lot as being elite clubs where you go to champagne dinners and Mm. talk about high philosophy and in reality you're not really doing too much Mm -hmm. but they are very important for running elections because you get the national infrastructure and you get importantly as you point out the Mm. expertise of how to do a communications operation and i think one underappreciated element of macron's campaign in 2017 is that he launched his movement as he called it then Mm. quite early i I believe it was either 2016 or 2015 but it was it was 2016 so he had a full year of laying the political infrastructure and the campaign infrastructure and getting the right people on board and getting a message sorted by professional communication staff before he announced his candidacy. Whereas Zamor, you know, yes, he's a TV presence. Yes, he knows how to animate an audience from a studio, but he doesn't have that campaign infrastructure that you need, especially if you're trying to take on established parties, which is what he's aiming to do. Yep. Um, Two things on that. He's going to announce um, today his party uh, and the name of his party. Uh, it's not clear what the party name is going to be, but I know the, the kind of logo will be an olive branch um, for peace, but also because Zemmour in uh, Berber means um, uh, um, olive tree, I think. It means olive tree. I'm, I'm... So that's the first thing. He's going to announce his party. He doesn't have a party, but he has this kind of de facto party organization around him. Uh, which was called Les Amis d'Éric Zemmour, which was kind of a proto-party for him when he was still officially uh, not running. Um, and I want to say something about what you just said, about how um, Macron surrounded himself early. He surrounded himself early, but in the end, the people he had to use, for just, you know, especially like for, for, to become MPs, um, people working in his campaign, um, also being somewhat amateurish. Um, and what struck me actually in Valérie Pécresse speech after she won the primary was how she made her professionalism and the professionalism of people around her a key asset. Now, to be fair, I thought, I thought her, her post-victory speech and her post-first round speech she made were very uninspiring. I thought it was pretty blunt. Um, but maybe people after five years of uh, La République En Marche and MPs looking like they didn't really know what they were supposed to do, 
maybe people will be happy to get kind of all school politicians back uh, into the, the job. Um, the other thing I think Zimbabwe is going to struggle is unlike Macron, who had kind of, uh, um, let's say, uh, friendly coverage in the press because, you know, you can new look centrist for new Tony Blair. Um, he, he's young, he's handsome. Um, yada, yada, yada. He's a centrist. Zemmour is, is not going to get any um, help from the, um, from the press. He famously flipped off a woman in Marseille. He's in his car, flips off. He became an international meme within minutes uh, of, you know, the woman flipping off Zemmour and Zemmour flipping her off back. Um, but what is interesting, that whole thing, is the media talked about this Zimbabwe flipping off and being very uh, unpresidential, and that's 100% something you should talk about. But nobody in the national press, except for kind of Valeur Actuelle, kind of right to far right magazine, talked about the weekend where Antifas were attacking uh, journalists, were attacking the restaurants in which he was eating, um, having lunch. Um, nobody was talking about that. And um, I think Zimbabwe just has to tough it up. I think he, ex- he has to accept that he's not going to get any help from the media. And it, I think if he, ha- has, if he wants to have a chance of winning this, he's going to have to go full Trump. He's going to have to go full, the, the media is our enemy. Um, uh, he's going to have to be very aggressive on that. I, I'm not sure it's very healthy for democracy, but I don't think he will uh, find a better way for him to make his case than attacking the media, which is also very unpopular in France um, as of now. And, and yeah, and I think additionally to that, if you're not getting help from traditional media, then you need to be extremely digitally savvy and harness yeah. all the channels of social media to get your message across. In many ways, it's a way of circumventing the traditional press. And I think, you know, we've, I mean, there's so much documented now on Twitter's algorithm and Facebook's algorithm that it's very much open for someone with his firebrand politics to really make a splash and expand his met the reach of his message using social media. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if he has Mm -hmm. the right advisors in place and the right strategy around it, that could be his way of breaking through and sort of breaking the slump that he's in because where, you know, Le Pen has been around yeah. and campaigning for president for what feels like decades. Um, you know, it's yeah. more, you know, this is his first go at it and he can probably, he's a, yeah, it's he's fresh. I, mean, I, I say fresh air for a 70 year old, but yeah, he is, he is a, he is a fresh yeah. voice on the presidential election circuit. I, I, I also want to talk a little bit about his video. Um, um, I think it's it's worth listening to to kind of understand what where Zim was coming from and what kind of animated. But there's also another interesting um, issue with that video. It essentially got shadow banned on YouTube, meaning that if you typed Zimur uh, video candidat something along those lines, um, you wouldn't be be able to find it. You'd be able to find the press talking about it but you wouldn't be able to find it directly. Despite the fact, I think it's like a 2.5 million views or something like that, something completely absurd like that. 2.5, maybe, maybe 3 million, I have no idea. It keeps rising. Um, then on top of that, YouTube decided that you would only be uh, able to access it if you can prove your 18 or order, which means either get, giving credit card um, details or kind of um, some kind of ID. I think he's not going to be... He, I, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a moment where a social media platform decides Zimur is too dangerous for a brand. We can't accept it. Uh, maybe Twitter, maybe YouTube or something like that. Uh, it's going to be interesting to follow because we all remember what happened to Trump's Twitter account after the Capitol Hill um, insurrection. And I think something like that might just happen in France. Um, and that's something to follow because what we saw with the YouTube video was a kind of heavy-handed approach already um, to limit the influence of Zimur. And yes, Zimur has to use these, these social media platforms. But also, the social media platforms are very uncomfortable with politicians. It does not like using them as an asset. And that's something he's going to have to be very keenly aware of. And in many ways, that could aid his case, um, especially if it's... yeah. In, with Trump after the attempt interaction and also just four years of him saying whatever he felt like on Twitter, I think with Zamor in the run up to an election, it becomes a bit more, you know, if you get banned in the, as you're running for president, then I think that attack line becomes more potent 
because you're saying, you know, look, they're trying to yep. silence my voice and shut me out of this race. They're trying to silence your yep. voice to... by doing that. Yep. But I mean, you know, with Trump, he's, yep. he'd already lost. Um, he just was too yeah, delusional yeah. to accept it. Yeah, he was he was a lame duck, so they, they didn't mind getting rid of him anyways. Um, that's a fair point. Um, I, I want to pivot to the kind of larger landscape of the election because we talked a lot about the right. Um, just a reminder for everyone, Macron right now is at 24%, 25% of the electorate. He is pretty much, as of now, guaranteed a runoff spot. Um, the question is against who? And if he faces Le Pen or Zemmour, he is uh, looking in a strong position to, 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 to win. He actually has a weaker performance against Le Pen than against Zemmour. So we'll have to see how this evolves. But that is something that is weakening Zimmer's case, which is, um, you know, Le Pen can't win. But if, Le, if if you say Le Pen can't win and she is outperforming you in a runoff against Macron, that kind of blunts your case. Um, but let's pivot a little to the, to the left. Um, so we said the right, excluding Macron, was at roughly 45%. If you include Macron, we are now at 60%. And... If you look at kind of the main left-wing parties here, sorry, 70% with Macron. I, I knew I, I got my math wrong here. 70%, the right plus Macron is 70%. If you look at all the left-wing candidates, you've got Mélenchon roughly at 9%, Jadot, the Green candidate, 8%, Hidalgo, the, party, the Socialist Party candidate, 5%. Then you get the Communist Party at 2%, then you get kind of other fringe candidates at 1%, 2 2%. If you're being generous, it's like 25% of the electorate that is going to vote for a um, left-wing candidate. This is a very dire situation. Um, now, a lot of left-wing candidates um, have roughly similar platforms. The Greens and the Socialists, it's not a huge difference. Um, Mélenchon is a bit more different because he's a lot more anti-European than the other two. But even then, the... The militant bases, the party bases of all these different candidates feel they have a lot in common. And right now, they are completely dispersed in three different major candidacies, none of them breaking 10% as of now. So the question, of course, would be, oh, well, you know, you're all the 9, 8, 5%. Um, why don't you guys unite? Why don't you guys stick together? Especially because with Zemmour in the running, what Zemmour is doing is he's artificially lowering the threshold to make it to the second round. Because had it just been uh, Le Pen-Macron, the, 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 the um, ticket for yeah. runoff would be been at 25%, which is huge. But with Zemmour, the ticket for runoff might just be 19%, 20%, That is completely doable if the left unites and stick together. Now, can they, lift a, can they win a runoff against... Uh, Macron, I don't think so. Can they win a runoff against Zemmour? Uh, maybe, but it's going to be a tough job. The question is, will they stick together? Well, I don't think anyone who's ever spoken to someone who's a member of a left-wing political party would tell you that the left is particularly good at sticking together or rallying behind one voice when it's needed. And, you know, we look at it, if you're looking at those numbers... Even the variation in the mm. candidates, I mean, Mélenchon in, in 2017, you know, he did quite well with 19% in that first round. Yep. Um, obviously, it's, yep. he's a bit lower now. But the difference between Mélenchon yep. and Hidalgo is quite broad. It's quite a large gap to bridge. And his record as a politician in France is not someone who's going to make the grand compromise, um, the grand no. bargain on the left to try and shut out no. these voices on the right and just get someone who is somewhat aligned into that second round. Um, so although, you know, tactically it would be a, a good thing for the followers of uh, left-wing politics in France, it's just not likely with the nature of the characters that are aligned on that side of the political spectrum. I think what you might, uh, I, I agree with you, there's, there's, a, there's a big difference between Mélenchon and Hidalgo. But I want to nuance that by saying there is not a huge difference between the Hidalgo voter in the Mélenchon voter. Um, and this is, this is my point. I don't think a um, de jure alliance is feasible. I think maybe Hidalgo, if she continues dropping in polls, she's a 5%, mm. which is really not great. She might end up supporting the Green Party, but even that, I'm not sure, because I'm not sure the Socialist Party would be able to swallow that pill. 
But what I'm saying is the people who vote for Mélenchon, the people who vote for Jadot, and the people who vote for Hidalgo aren't that far away ideologically, especially now that they are so, so kind of, um, they understand they are, um, their political yeah. clout has dropped so much. It kind of tightens them together. What might happen is rather than an alliance through the top, a de jure alliance through the top, you might have a de facto alliance from the bottom, where at some point, one of the three starts getting a clear lead over the rest. And there is going to be a snowballing effect of tactical voting, which is exactly what happened in the 2017 presidential election, where you had Benoit Hamon, the socialist candidate, and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, the far right, far left France Insoumise candidate, who were neck and neck for a long time. And then at some point, Mélenchon started getting the lead. And then you get a snowball, snowballing tactical voting effect. And in the end, Amon and Mélenchon, who were neck and neck, end up at very different positions with Amon being at 6% and Mélenchon being at 19%. This might just be the left's best chance at making a runoff. One of the three, he's not going to get everyone because some people, you know, um, will not accept Mélenchon, will not accept Hidalgo, will rather vote for you know, their convictions rather than vote tactically, and all of those things. But the best chance of the left to make it to runoff is a um, snowballing tactical vote. And I think you could see that with, um, you know, as you, as you point out with Hidalgo and Jadot, if they can find the right issues to frame their campaign around. So, you know, the right's talking about national sovereignty, which comes in many stripes and forms in terms of borders and relationship with the European Union. If the left, if one of those candidates yeah. on the left is able to frame the debates around a particular issue and then generate momentum on that. So for the Green Party, obviously it's going to be, it's going to be climate. It's yeah. going to be energy. Um, all the candidates yeah. in the Republican Fine. Party are pledging to build nuclear reactors. Yeah. That's something you could challenge them on, but you know, by pivoting and saying, we yeah. want to do it, but with more safer renewable energy sources. I know we've talked about nuclear energy in the past, but you know, that's something that Jadot could potentially own. And mm -hmm. given, you know, at least for Hidalgo, you know, she's she's the mayor of Paris. I don't know too much about um, the voting blocs within the Socialist Party, fully confess mm -hmm. to that. But that's something that as a great person being more ambitious about the Greens because mm -hmm. they've recently gone into government in some other countries around Europe. But I think that's something they could really push and potentially get that momentum, as you say. And then with you know debates coming up, if they are able to establish themselves as the lead voice on that side, you can get that snowball effect and potentially get to, I, I think 19 is still a lot, but I think to 15% would still be pretty good, especially if the right is fractured. I think, I think generally the left struggles to impose its themes. Um, you talked about climate, which is a good example. The Greens are ferociously anti-nuclear, always have been. It's part of kind of political tradition of those parties. The issue is the narrative on nuclear has changed completely in the past three years. And, and that's why Macron went from being, you know, somewhat anti-nuclear to fervently pro-nuclear. The, the narrative has completely changed. People have understood that they looked at Germany, Germany leaving nuclear, relying a lot more on, uh, on gas, a lot more on coal, and, and importing French nuclear energy. So people are like, okay, um, renewables isn't in the short term going to be able to pick it up, especially because it is not a controllable energy. Um, you, you cannot trust the sun or the wind to blow all the time at the same speed, at the same intensity. Um, and so the Greens are saying, we want, you know, we want to talk about climate, we want to talk about climate, but they're going to have a, nu they're going to have a nuclear as their Achilles heel on this. Um, they could talk about kind of social issues. Uh, a lot of French people are kind of worried about, um, uh, we will call in France, le pouvoir d'achat, essentially um, uh, living conditions. Uh, is my money going to um, allow me to afford um, you know, a bit of fun, uh, enough food for every month. Am I, am I going to be worried, you know, the 25 of a month about the rest of the week or something? Um, so they might be able to talk about this, um, but it's not easy because uh, this is where Zemmour is very strong, is he's capable, a bit exactly like Trump, because with, through bombast, through very aggressive comments, to make a theme so strong that everybody has to comment on it. Because if you don't, 
the journalist in front of you will say, well, Eric Zimor just said this about immigration. What do you think? And then all of a sudden you have to talk about immigration, which is a topic you didn't want to talk about because it's a topic which you're not comfortable with. You'd rather be talking about um, wages. You'd rather be talking about uh, energy. You'd rather be talking about climate. You'd rather be talking about uh, you know, wages in the public sector. Yeah, it's, it's very tricky. I mean, I'm sort of thinking about the West Wing. Of, you've got to get the pivot right. But a lot of times the press simply won't let you pivot to the issue that you want to talk about because they want to cover what's hot. Um, and especially, you know, now yeah. with social media, um, yeah, exactly. you're constantly being distracted by whatever is the yeah. hot, yeah, whatever's trending on Twitter, what's the hot topic of the day. This is why no journalist should be trending on Twitter. That's another debate. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask one question because yeah. if we're sort of looking at, you know, since the Hollande presidency, the last time the left was truly in power, I'm not going to call Macron a leftist because I know I'll get flayed alive on Twitter. Um, I saw an article recently yeah. talking about why, in large part, why France is having so many strong right-wing voices and so many conservatives of national prominence. And the point that this article made, and to bring it slightly back to our conversation about de Gaulle earlier, is that in the 50s and the 60s, mm-hmm. France had this incredible bench of left-wing intellectuals. Uh, you know, Sartre, Camus, de Beauvoir. Now, obviously yep. there is a Camus around today, but he's on the right. And those intellectual voices of the left just aren't there. And that's given a lot of space for candidates on the right to really dominate the intellectual discussions of French politics. And this arguably could be a wider problem that you're seeing across uh, Europe and other countries as well, but I, I wanted to specifically talk about France because of such a strong intellectual tradition there. Yeah, it's true. Um, right, there, there's been a dearth of kind of public intellectuals in, in French politics for a little while. Um, um, some of them still exist. I want to talk about, for example, Raphael Glucksmann, who I'm not sure you could call an intellectual. He was kind of a um, journalist intellectual journalist maybe um who essentially became a a a socialist party mep um so there's a few of them left but they really don't have the same sway on public opinion um even kind of more moderate intellectuals um there's one intellectual i I think he's well i think we can call him intellectual is jerome fourquet he is a pollster who's been writing some very interesting books on french uh, society french culture through the study of polls but even his, even the kind of conclusions of his stuff has been kind of very right right wing leaning. Um, so it's it's yeah I agree. But it's in a comfortable situation where there's a lack of public intellectuals on the left. Um, I, I'm not sure why. Um, maybe the, the legacy of Bourdieu, Deleuze, Derrida is just so so heavy to carry that no one really wanted to carry the mantle. I think maybe also the left, the left has kind of chosen different um, means to spread their ideas. Um, NGOs, I think we talked about NGOs recently. Um, a lot of kind of left-wing politicians and activists really see NGOs as the best way to defend their ideas um, through, through trials, through, you know, through the judiciary, um, through activism. But yeah, I agree, there's, there's a lack of uh, left-wing intellectual at the moment. Okay, you're in a hotbed of left-wing intellectualism, so let us know. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to keep us on here for too long, but I, I you know I think it's a really interesting point. In fact, I'm I'm very curious also to 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 see where, uh, you know, whether whether these sort of the hard, uh, the the, um, uh, you know, the, the the big intellectuals of the moment here in France, whether they're going to come in and, and make an impact on on the election. I think uh, you've seen Bernard Rivet do that. Mm-hmm. He came out and uh, with a with a big essay on tap for Tablet magazine magazine, which is a Jewish magazine in the states, uh, calling out Eric Zemmour and essentially saying he's you know he's a fellow Jew, but you shouldn't trust him. Uh, and but I'm really curious about um, the other ones, people like Alain Finkielkraut, mm-hmm. who for who for many years has been uh, veering to the right. I mean, he now is very much uh, critical of uh, mass immigration. Yeah. He's very uh, concerned about the state of um, you know. Um, uh, in, uh, assimilation in France, uh, or what about someone like Michel Onfray, who is uh, n- uh, n- who is nominally on the left, yeah. but in, in, in effect he's very much uh, sort of a populist and a sovereignist. Yeah. So, uh, he's been building. I think his magazine now is is very much a sort of an overarching 
magazine for uh, both sovereignists on the left yeah. and on the right. So, so I'm really curious to see where the, these into, these intellectuals are going to be um, are going to be coming in from uh, in terms of this uh, this race. I think uh, they certainly don't want to see them win, but they they're not they're not particularly uh, progressive either. No. I mean, certainly not. I don't think they're close. No, no, I think you're right. I think there's um, what's interesting, as you said. Onfray, um, Finkielkraut, there's a lot of intellectuals in the public debate who, who came from the left and then progressively moved to the right. And I think in the case of Finkielkraut, I think what is interesting is I think the Kreil affair, which we talked early on, which was one of the kind of moments where, where France realized there was going to be a simulation issue with young women coming in veils in, in, in um, uh, teenage schools and teenage, teenagers coming to school with veils. And that's when Zimmer kind of um, flipped from the left to the right. And I think it also played a large role in thinking court's thinking. It was very much a kind of uh, post-68 left-wing intellectual when he started. Um, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a good place to, to stop at. Um, thanks a lot to all of you. Don't forget, if you like the show and if you find, find yourself coming back every week, you can support us on our Patreon, which be right down here in the description. So please, we need your support. It's going to allow us to do some really cool things, allow us to have great guests on. It's going to allow us to upgrade our digital and physical equipment. It's And if enough of you join us on Patreon, we are thinking about having special events with you, special episodes, special content, special everything. So please do join us on Patreon. It's just below, down right here. Click. All your support means a lot to you. If you can't spare the extra money, don't worry at all. We still appreciate your support. You know, listening is great support. But you can go an extra mile. You can go in Apple Podcasts, for example, and write a nice review. Uh, you can subscribe to the show if you're listening to Spotify. You can share it with friends. It's still the best way to spread the podcast. So you can do all these things to keep Uncommon Decency growing and growing. Thanks a lot, Julian, for coming back on the show. Thanks a lot, Jorge, for coming back on the show. But I think you're pretty much obliged to do so. Um, and on that note, I think I can tell to all of you, see you next week.